a Podcast One production. Is the future bright? Is there room for us in that future? Do we feel safe? Or do we maybe feel like it's all a bit out of control? How we think about the future affects our actions today. So the answers to these questions are always important. And never more so than right now. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. Over the last 15 million seconds, that's nearly six months, we've talked to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this special finale episode for Series 1, we've invited three of our guests back into studio for a broader conversation about where we've come from and where we're going. So we're looking back and moving forward on this Series 1 finale of the next billion seconds. Over the length of Series 1, we've heard from Darren Sharp. He explained to us how cities that we live in today are becoming hotbeds of sharing and that we can literally share the wealth all around us to make our urban lives better. We spoke to Kate Turney, who's the CEO of the State Library of Victoria. She kicked it up a notch and showed us what it's like when we start to share knowledge and opportunity across a city, a nation, and the planet. Katie Mack showed us all of the wonders of the universe, including some very interesting speculations on how it might end and how much really did happen during the first billion seconds. Robert Tursik used his years in media to remind us that free doesn't really mean free and that too often we're the product. Mark Jeffrey, he gave us a tour around the weird and profitable world of cryptocurrencies where people trade their dollars for data. Eric Zimmerman drew us into a playful future where each of us finds some wiggle room amidst all of the systems that serve us and that we serve. Ken Goldberg introduced us to the concept of multiplicity, the idea that this might not be a machine-versus-man winner-take-all contest, but something more like a close collaboration where each does what they do best. It's been quite a ride. And we'll open this special episode where we started, all the way back in episode one, in conversation with John Alsop. Welcome, John. Thank you, Mark. Great to be back. So... If you listen to Ken talking in the episode, uh, the Rise of the Robots episode, he actually does not think we're going to have driverless cars very soon. He thinks it's a very hard problem. And one of the things that listeners resonated with in our first conversation was, you know, your belief that your kids, at least the younger ones, are never going to learn to drive. Having listened to what Ken said, are you wanting to walk that back a bit? Have you become a little bit more skeptical or do you still think things are basically on track? Well, I, I barely get to, uh, <laughs> to disagree with someone with that level of expertise in autonomous uh, machines. However, and this is something we addressed when I returned uh, a few weeks back, and I talked about the fact that, that in some ways I had already begun to walk it back up to a point. And what we arrived at is an idea that I, I continue to, um, to probably think is, is the state of play, which is that within a certain constraint set of locations and times and conditions, uh, I, I think we, we probably will see autonomous vehicles uh, in, in, in the sort of decade timeframe that I thought of. But those edge cases... Uh, are probably you know whether it's it's extreme weather conditions or extreme road conditions, uh, they're probably the situations in which we're probably going to take a bit longer still to get uh, cars safely to be able to negotiate in all circumstances. But I, my general feeling is, uh, uh, you know, as an urban person, uh, that. I, I imagine those younger daughters of mine, particularly my youngest, who, who will turn five in a, a few weeks, I really can't see that she will... It will be worth her while learning to drive. Because the cars will simply be good enough. Not that they'll be perfect, but they'll be good enough. Yeah, and that speaks to a kind of deeper thing that perhaps we haven't touched on so much in this series, which is the impact of, of economics or on economics or economic thinking about the impact of technology. Uh, at some point, it just 
certain things are or aren't worth your while. Right. Certain things that weren't worth your while become worth your while because the unit cost drops so dramatically. Or certain things just, are, you know, the unit costs are so high they continue not to be worth your while. But you know, imagine, you know, in, in kind of a decade's time, 12, 13 years, where this daughter of mine will be 16, 17. At that point, if in almost all circumstances, and given at that point too, it's not very safe to drive, as you just begin to learn, uh, there are curfews and, and they're increasingly strict curfews on on younger drivers. If you look at the, the whole, you know, window or the, the whole kind of, package of what it will look like for her to drive. I just think that last mile of, you know, after midnight in a very rainy night uh, in country roads. You're still going to be getting a call in the middle of the night. That's it. I'll still be getting up and Dad, this is where the driverless bus dropped me off. You have to come pick me up. Yeah, I suspect there's that last bit where it isn't worth anyone's while for her to really learn to drive. All right. So one of the things that I actually got to explore in my own work this year was what's going on in autonomous drones. And of course, the thing we find out is that all of the traffic on the ground makes it very hard for an autonomous car to make all of the decisions it needs to sort of find its way around the city. You don't have that problem in the air. In the air, it's all freeway driving, more or less, which is one thing that autonomous cars are already really good at. So do you think maybe... The younger kids will go directly from some sort of not driving to some sort of Jetsons-like flying? Well, if you look at what's happening in Africa with the delivery of medicines Mm. uh, in relatively unregulated airspaces, it seems... As with you know other areas that uh, where the adoption of technology occurs, often I think it might occur in the in the developing world, where again the unit economics, the lack of regulation, and so on means that perhaps that we'll see these experiments there, whether they're initially with humans or not. I, I kind of hope not, but uh, but I, I, they, again, if they point to point. Uh, of, of, you know, the economics is about a point-to-point delivery of, of a person. Mm. And at that point, uh, you have kind of safer surface roads where, where someone can, can then get an autonomous vehicle. Perhaps that's the way it will look like. So that's really interesting. I was doing some work with folks in Papua New Guinea recently, and it turns out that Papua New Guinea is an interesting case for drones because there are roads in Papua New Guinea, but the joke is what they say is the roads don't go anywhere. In other words, the roads aren't connected together. There are roads, but they're not connected into a single system. And they're actually looking at drones as a really cost-effective way to be able to connect points that are very far apart. So the case in point that I was shown was you can grow a lettuce in the highlands. And it will cost 50 cents for that farmer to grow lettuce. But by the time it gets to Port Moresby, it costs $30 because the transport costs are so high between where it's being grown and where it's actually being consumed. And so you have to think that maybe the economics there. And again, if you're carrying lettuce, you don't actually have to be very safe. Relatively speaking. So I guess it, it reminds me a little of, of the internet arriving in China via mobile devices, mm. where all the traditional landlines, dial-up, all of it was just bypassed entirely. And we went directly to the generation of technology which was present. And so in many respects, the most advanced, at least technologically, uh, use of the internet at the moment, is in China. And I wonder, to get back to my point about what's emerging in the developing world, we'll see that happen. Why would you have cars if you kind of don't need them? Yes. Uh, And similarly, why would you roll out uh, hundreds and thousands and millions of kilometres of power throughout India and connect them to giant coal-burning power stations when you can plant the power generation through solar directly in someone's house or directly in their village. And, and, and to me, this is you know a point you, I remember one of the very first things you ever said that I, I listened to a decade or more ago around what was happening in Kerala mm. in, in, in India, India, around the use of mobile phones to create marketplaces in a way that was emergent rather than in a way that was planned out and the impact that had on the local economics of that area. And I just, I wonder whether, you know, in in William Gibson's uh, famous, almost overused words, the future has arrived, it's just not evenly distributed, where we're not looking in the right place for where that future is. And we often think, wow, that's us geeks with our phones and our iPhone 10s. No, 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 it's not. It's it's what's emerging in Papua New Guinea and in Kerala and in sub-Saharan Africa and in India with the use of new technologies. On the second episode of this series, we spoke to Andy Pellane, who designs services for a living. And services are all the things that we touch and all the things that we interact with. And it was very interesting having a conversation with Eric Zimmerman about 
the way we probably should be approaching these systems, which is to sort of poke at them and find the wiggle room in them, find the space in them, because there's something that we can learn about those systems, and there's a kind of freedom that we gain. And I'd like to welcome Andy back. Welcome. Hi, Mark. And you, in fact, said that you occasionally do lie to these systems, and when you <laughs> fill them out, you said that you said that on your episode. Should we be constantly sort of like Eric? Should we sort of be constantly coming up to all of these services and probing them to sort of see what they know about us and how they're working. Do you think that's a really good approach for us to take? Uh, yes. I mean, ultimately, I think that the the thing that's going on, um, which has always gone on, and I think that the technology blinds us to it quite often, is we think the world is changing and kind of it's moving on to a next stage, but it's not. It's just in constant change, right? So we've always been through it. And I think what you see throughout history and beyond is that wiggling around, is that playing around with, you know, where's this stuff going? What can it do? How can I get around it? Um, how can I make it do things that I, it wasn't intended to do? Um, what are the cracks in between? And, you know, the idea, of, that's the lovely thing about play, right? Is you're playing with these things. And so in that, uh, originally J.J. Gibson, a lot of people know it from Don Norman, the idea of affordance, the sort of handles and the, what does this object afford doing? So in, in J.J. Gibson's original one, you know, a, a log on the ground, affords sitting or for a, a water boatman the surface tension of the water affords walking but for us it affords swimming because it's got this kind of viscosity so i think that what we're sort of looking at all the time is is different cultures and that's the, going back to what john was talking about you've got different cultures at different stages who have different cultural norms and opinions and uh, regulations about the affordances of all of these emerging technologies and they're all kind of playing with them in in different ways and then at some point like if you're kind of picking a lock, there's a little clunk and something really takes off and, and uh, the cylinder turns and we move on to a, a new stage and everyone says, aha, that's the way to do it. And, and it spreads around the world. One of the things that I think is particularly true maybe as people get a little older or they feel a little less confident about a technology is they're less willing to, I guess, have a play. It's a quality that we tend to associate with younger people, particularly where technology is concerned. And people don't want to break the device or break the service or whatever it is. Do we have ways of being able to sort of make people more comfortable with the idea that they really should be playing around with these things? I mean, I agree. I see that generational thing all the time. And the, the best way to tell whether anything works or not in terms of a user experience is give it to a kid. They immediately try and break it. They immediately try and work out sort of other things that it will do and force it to not do the thing it's meant to do because that's how they kind of find the boundaries. And then they directly tell you that it's rubbish. Right? So that's, they're kind of fantastic. I don't think we have that. And actually coming back to the autonomous vehicles thing, you know, that's not something you really want to find out either. Right? So I think part of the kind of challenge and a part of the sort of scare factor of all of this, when we, whether we think of robots, whether we think of drones, whether we think of autonomous vehicles or AI, is this feeling that it's got so complex now, it's a black box and I don't really know how to play with it. And I can kind of play with it a little bit, but I can't really kind of pull it apart and break it in the way that um, I'm, I might feel more comfortable with. I could not have asked for a better introduction to our next guest, Genevieve Bell, who was talking to us not too long ago about some disturbing stories about what happens when you can find out where your cat is all of the time and you find out your cat has other lovers and cows that can milk themselves all of the time. Genevieve showed us that a connected world is a place where things that were invisible become visible and that we're forced to acknowledge them. Welcome back, Genevieve. Hey, Mark. Always good to be here. Now, the questions that Andy was just asking are, I know, front and center for you. And we couldn't talk about this when we recorded our podcast, but you were just on the throes of launching a new program called 3A at the ANU. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? So as of two and a half months ago, we've launched a new institute at the Australian National University that really is tackling what the World Economic Forum describes as the fourth wave of industrialization, which they characterize as cyber physical systems. And for me, what that means is what happens when AI, machine learning, big data, IoT, and a few other things stop being individual bits and pieces and start to become a coherent whole, much the same way 
more than 200 years ago, steam engines became trains, became railways, became transportation systems. And as those systems emerged, they were characterized by things like an increasing degree of abstraction, an increasing degree of scale, and a great set of anxieties about safety and security. As we look at this current moment, we find ourselves in, I mean, the questions that Andy rehearses are the right ones, right? How do we think about what's inside those systems and how do we know how to ask about them? So part of what my new institute is doing is tackling precisely that. It is to say that the people who build each one of those underlying technologies is wonderful, shouldn't go away, but is not necessarily the right set of people to tackle what happens when they become a whole. So the 3A Institute, somewhat in a bolshy way, good Australian bolshy way, says what we're going to do is build a new applied science that will tackle those questions and that will build a new body of knowledge, a new way of transferring that knowledge and a new community of practice. So really we're trying to make a way of making sense of that world to answer some of Andy's questions. The first sort of applied science school in America was West Point. Mm -hmm. Engineering, because guess what? Soldiers have to build things. They have to build bridges. They have to build fortifications, all of these things. So the history of engineering as a discipline is relatively new. And also relatively radical. So in fact, the first school of engineering on the planet is actually the Ecole Polytechnique in Paris and started in 1794 in the middle of revolutionary Mm -hmm. fans. It's actually one of the things that characterizes the reign of terror from 1793 to the back end of 1794, during which time the revolutionary guard, basically, sets about dismantling all the apparatus of the the royal regimes, amongst which they decenter the priesthood, they decenter a whole series of locuses of control, and one of the things that immediately becomes clear was that the priests were actually controlling the road system and controlling the movements of goods and services. And so what you needed to do as the next form of administration was create a mechanism that you could trust that wasn't by birth or by fiat, but by training to control all of that. And so engineering actually emerges as this quintessential part of the first big scaled democracy and it was about blending the best of the natural sciences and the best of the human sciences so physics math chemistry but also philosophy logic and french literature and the idea was to build technocrats was to build people who would administer this burgeoning democratic system which if you think about it that way actually means that at its root engineering was this profoundly radical thing i mean it's part and parcel of a new way of thinking about the world by the time you get to west point west point is actually staffed up in its first instantiation by people who came from the echo polytechnic because there was no one who knew how to blend uh, praxis and theory discipline so one that had hands-on practical learning and theory and so much as i'm sure it would horrify many of the americans we know west point and then all the other the things that have an IT on the end, so, you know, Caltech, MIT, RIT, all come out of that same model that is a direct import from France. We'll be right back with Genevieve Bell, Andy Pellain, and John Alsop. One of the things that became a thing this year was that the things that are in the world now have started to have this quality of autonomy and agency. They're starting to do things. And the sort of category example for this... That's Rodney the Roomba. He's chasing around the floor in the recording studio, mapping everything out. And when he's got the map, he's beaming it back to his masters, which it turns out aren't his owners. We now have a world where, just as a bog standard, everything is connected, you know, might be Wi-Fi, might be Bluetooth, it might be mobile broadband, it really doesn't matter. But guys, we now have to worry about the fact that these devices which we've built that are smart, that sense, that know things, know things about us, may in fact be quite promiscuous with that. What are we doing here? You mean the way the things are gossiping about us behind our backs? (laughs) So the very first user testing we did at Intel a million years ago when we were looking at what happened when things got connected and smart and we asked people how they'd feel about their fridge talking to their electrical company or their car talking to other cars on the road. And every time we had those conversations, the first word people came up with was gossip. And I think that's really significant, right? Because one of the things that gossip functions as in cultures is a form of social regulation Mm. and a form of control. Mm -hmm. And so it is fascinating to imagine what it means that what people saw was these devices gossiping about them, because then you have to ask, where is the locus of control and the locus of effectively social surveillance? 
Okay, but we don't have to ask that anymore because we actually now have these examples of it, right? We were maybe thinking, oh, hypothetically, these things will sometimes gossip about us. But now in reality, they are in fact gossiping about us. I would love it if devices could gossip because it would show some social smarts. Because the thing about all the smart devices is that they're actually, socially at least, incredibly dumb. The example I often use, if, if I whispered something to you, Mark, if we're in a public place, I would expect you not to broadcast it to everyone because mm. you would be able to read all the context of what a whisper means. Um, whereas if I kind of shout your name across a crowded room, I'm signaling to everyone else, hey, I know that guy. Right. So there's a whole load of stuff that goes with that. Our smart devices don't have any of that. I mean, they're really kind of stupid. And that's why we can, they're constantly kind of running afoul of human behavior. Well, and worse than just stupid, right? Because they don't know how to do the other thing, which is lie. So the other human way that we manage, control and survive in the world, right, is by not telling the truth under certain circumstances. Yes. And so we know that, you know, had you whispered something in Mark's ear, he could have feigned not knowing you. Had you yelled at him across a room, he could have looked at you and go, who? And pretended he didn't know you. Because those are also forms of social interaction, social yeah. Congress and are also one of the ways that we manage, right? So I, mean, I think you're right. Not only are these smart devices not particularly social, one of the facets of which they are not social is they don't actually know how to read context appropriately about when to say yeah. things and when, frankly, not to say things. Okay, but you, know, you talk about a device that lies, all right? If I built a device and it started giving me the wrong information... Like Facebook, for example. Yeah. I would think... Well, wait a minute, something's gone wrong here. It's broken or or the programming is bad or whatever it might be. And so, so what's the difference? What's the line here between something that's working to protect you and something that's just actually broken? But this is the, the difference between actual sentience and, and pretend, right? That when you we design interfaces, and this is the thing I think is a design problem, we design interfaces that feel like they're human. Like, hey, Siri. Uh, but actually aren't, we kind of get into this confused interaction where it triggers all of the kind of human behaviours of how we would interact with another person. But in fact, we're interacting with a kind of just a logic machine and it's a pretty primitive one. So, you know, I think what you're saying is how do I know when it's broken or not? Well, it has to be transparent, right? It has to, it has to not say, this is the answer to your Google question and OK, Google, and that's the one true answer. But to say, I'm not really sure. This may be this 20% chance that this is the answer. And, and so some of that's an interface thing, right, about, about actually revealing parts of what's going on. But that sort of goes against a lot of the ethos of a lot of companies designing this stuff as they want it to seem as if the thing's really kind of glossy and perfect and smart. And in fact, it's kind of more interesting when it's not. And the example about uh, the Tesla kind of pulling on you or the example about, um, you know, creating a program that's deliberately trying to force you off the road as a simulator in order to learn what a human does. That stuff for me is really kind of fascinating because it's actually sort of looking at that, going back to Eric Zimmerman, what are the boundaries of this system? What are the boundaries of the game? And what happens when we start kind of uh, playing with it? I think that's much more a much more interesting interface as well in an experience than just the kind of glossy straight one. So, John, I mean, you spent your career in the web and you see the web sort of being this massive vacuum of information for us. And vacuum as in it sucks or... <laughs> Or vacuum as in it's running around on the floor in the studio. Yeah, or, well, or it takes all of my time away. Yeah. Well, I, or, all of the above. I, I think, think probably all of the above. I mean, the, uh, the Rodney the Roomba is in some sense the embodiment of this idea because it is sucking up all the dirt and sucking up all of the data at the same time and then doing whatever it wants with it. Rob Tursick was very, I think, eloquent talking about this sort of I guess, original sin of the web, that we built a web that was really dependent on being that data hungry. Well, we did eventually. But if you go back to the origins, so the web is obviously kind of an outpouring and almost the apotheosis of the personal computer. If you go back to Stuart Brand, who kind of in many ways is the, you know, one of the great-great-grandfathers, I guess, of personal computing. And all of that kind of Berkeley, Bay Area, back before it was all tech bros and, and it, it a bunch of hippies, literally. People forget that the, the hippies came and the, the summer of love, it was all in San Francisco. And there's, you know, you know as people have described Steve Jobs as the billion-dollar hippie, I think there was a, a kind of a, a sort of utopian vision of personal computing and the web embodied that the early web folks like yourself and others that that I knew and and and, and you know like they kind of were, were were empowered by this sense of of 
prospect and possibility and a set of open values and a belief in what the web could do for humanity. And somewhere along the way, it got turned into a giant engine for sucking our attention out of us and, uh, you know, information about us and, and then replacing our attention with advertising. So I don't know. Yes, I think that was our original sin, was, was some choice we made somewhere there probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. Andy, did we make a choice or did someone just go, this was the solution? Genevieve did, I mean... Oh, I think it was earlier. So my ex-lecturers, um, Andy Cameron and Richard Barbert, wrote an essay called The Californian Ideology, which was, you can still find online, uh, they wrote it in the early 90s, talking about this very thing, this very, very strange collision between that kind of hippie liberalism of the 60s and 70s and the liberalism of neoliberalism and the, those two managed to kind of find a become bedfellows and the hippie side of it is all about diy culture and mm. create this thing and and everyone can do anything and it's collided with free market uh, and that's what that's what silicon valley basically is is that it it sort of set itself apart as a set of people who where technology um, and entrepreneurism are above in any other concerns, right? And, and that technology is always the solution. The sort of binding part is a technological determinism, that, that more technology is going to kind of make the world better and we're the smart people who are going to do it and any kind of regulation is going to get in the way, so get rid of that. Um, and it's that sort of weird soup that's coalesced into the, the situation that we're in now. So just, and, and I can't remember whether I've actually told this story or not in this series, but I remember the day... I, I think I did tell this story with Rob Tresick when uh, I saw the very first web advertising company, which was Organic Online, being set up. And I didn't actually understand what was going on, even though I'd been working on the web for, I don't know, almost a year at that point. I did not understand it. It didn't make sense to me. And I don't know why I had such a penny drop moment there and then. It's like, oh, people will put ads on the web. But it seemed like as soon as you do that, then you actually want to know who's seeing the ad. You want to know where and when they're seeing the ad. And, and all of a sudden, that was actually possible. It's not possible on a television. It's not possible on radio. But all of a sudden, because it's an internet and everyone's got a number and an address and a computer and a browser, all of a sudden, all of that stuff's on offer. And somehow, because it was on offer, we had to have it. Well, you have to have it in order to deliver some of those services, right? It's the same with the Netflix thing or whatever. You, know, you need to know where people are, um, what they're watching, when they're watching, when they press stop and all of that stuff. The question about why did we get that there or is that a choice we made was this question of do you give that to advertisers or not, you know? And clearly the, the money money talks. Yeah, but do you think part of that was, I mean, I'm thinking about Fred Turner's books about, you know, the early days of the internet. I'm thinking about Doug Engelbart standing there on stage in 68 going, the internet will be at, you know, imagine her, permanently live connection to everything at your service. He was very clear about that language, right? And if you look at the early days of everything from the well onwards, there is this really interesting kind of notion about transparency where it's understood as being a, not an ideology, not a cultural value, but kind of the byword of it all. And I sometimes wonder whether the seduction of that was also such that everyone having a number and everyone having an identity was actually part and parcel in some ways of it didn't seem so bad because we knew this was all just a big transparent landscape in which everything was going to be transparent and I think there's a piece where there's this really strange slippage that happens when those very same people turn out to you know start being the ones who are now writing the histories and telling the stories they go from being the architects to the mythologizers mm. and somewhere in that this really interesting kind of um, moment happens and you know I was in the valley when it happened, I remember it, of where transparency stopped being an ideological thing and became this thing that every CEO stood on stage and talked about their products as making this kind of democratising, global, accessible, transparent. And that, in some ways, is this really interesting move that sanitises everything that goes on underneath. And as long as they stood up and kept saying that and evoked the genealogies that went with it, because they did. Then you don't actually have to be transparent because you're <laughs> yeah. claiming you are. Well, because because the move is really subtle, right? It's a, it's a sleight of hand. Of course we're being transparent. Part of the way we're transparent is we, you know, we simultaneously, no one needs to know who you are on the internet. On the other hand, we know exactly who you are. And it's an interesting, I mean, they're two sides of the same coin at one level, right? Of course, you are known and unknown all at the same moment. 
Well, I don't think anyone is actually unknown anymore. It was interesting. I was having a conversation with a room full of senior public servants this was last week, and I was talking about how all these databases can be used. And, and one of the public servants, I think probably from the AFP, although I'm not sure, it's like, oh, well, you know, we don't actually know who these people are. We can get a list and it might be sort of anonymized. And one of the other public servants turned and said to them, no, I'm sorry. We can just match the databases and we find out now. And this is one of the things that's become public knowledge over the, the last year is that you can take census data or other types of data that are anonymous by themselves and just throw well, but, but one so, little bit against it and all of a sudden they know who you are. But to John's earlier point, right, and I think that's why I wanted to flag it as being an ideological cultural statement, right, is that as the web has turned up in other places, it hasn't been freighted with the same notion that it was going to be transparent and, mm. quote-unquote, about democratising, right? So when you say other places, you mean geographically, such as China, or do you mean like in different devices and different I think all of the uses? above. I mean, I would say in Australia what it looked like was completely different. It turns up under a different basically paid regime with a different set of cultural practices. We certainly have a different narrative attendant to it now than you would find in Silicon Valley. I think, you know, what it looks like in Israel, India, China, but also emerging places, I mean, Turkey, Indonesia. So the notion that somehow we were building this global system that was going to be characterised by transparency, radical disruption, and it was going to bring democracy, those turn out to be both cultural statements and also manifestly not the case. And that, in fact, you could divorce the technology from the architecture, from the cultural baggage, and actually create profoundly different internets. It was a Californian ideology. It was indeed, but it only becomes clear that way when it goes somewhere else. Yeah. Right, because, in fact, the way they use the internet in China is in fact quite different than the way they use it in Australia or in America mm-hmm. or Yeah, because else. Tencent and WeChat function very differently than WhatsApp and Signal. And because, you know, what they did with Project Dada in India with biometric authentication doesn't look like what would happen somewhere else using biometric factors in the Internet of Things. I mean, I think we have to sort of imagine that we get a little lazy when we talk about this as though there were one mm. manifestation of it when in fact there are many. So, in fact... Even if the things that we see going on around us in Australia or in America with devices hoovering up data and using them in particular ways may be true for us, to, to say that they're true for everyone... Well, is, they may be true in other places and that's understood differently. We imagine that hoovering up data is bad. The way you framed it, it was bad. Hoover, bad. What is, the, what is the Roomba's name running around on the floor? Bad. Rodney. Rodney is bad. <laughs> but Rodney's, you know, only bad if you believe that data is being used against you in a manner that is... Intractable, but we also assume that privacy is a you know fundamental right that we've always had, and it's it's fairly recent, really. Nice. In in cultures, well, in in Western cultures too, very dense, living with a lot of people. And if you imagine our cultures that share devices quite a lot, mm. um, then you have a different attitude to what privacy means on your device. Um, and and to Gen- Genevieve's point, I think you know you have a different set of cultural sort of protocols, but you also have then a different understanding of what the affordances of of this technology are. So back to the line about data being used against us, and I'll talk about my own work at this point in time because I've just had an article published in Mianjin. Yay, go Mark! um, Which is really talking about something that was inspired by a report that was published in The Australian on the 1st of May about how Facebook was actually shopping around a deck to its advertisers showing how they could actually track the emotional state of their users, particularly young users, and they would know whether they were anxious or sad or worthless or just depressed or whatever, and they would know exactly when would be the right moment to actually get that person some advertising in their Facebook feed to get them to buy something. And it it showed me that, in fact, this, I guess, fear about data being used against us is not just a fear, that, in fact, it is a real thing. It's a part of the world that we're living in. So yes, Rodney the Roomba is a very nice way of being able to put it, a very cute way of being able to put it, but then on the other hand you have two billion people who are interacting with the system that is gathering data so that it can use it against them. Well, and to serve them, right? That's the, that's the, the tricky bit is that there's lots of things that we also all love using um, you know, that hoovers up our data and we, we make that bargain. Right? It's, it's either a okay or it's a Faustian pact. You know, you really are it, it depends. I think that, that it comes back to this transparency thing of the sleight of hand. If it's very clear, and I don't know how clear it is to many people, but I think it's certainly with, let's say with Google and Google's suite of tools, 
for many people, that's a, it, Google was very kind of open about the fact that they read your email. That's the part of the, the deal of getting a Gmail account. Now, that's actually, I remember when it first came out, that was quite clear, and then it sort of sunk to the bottom a little bit, and now it's not so clear. Didn't they say earlier this year that they were going to stop reading your email because they simply didn't need to anymore? Because they, I think, I now now know so much about us. The metadata is enough. Though it does have that interesting feature of late, where it now reminds you again that it's reading it by giving you the choices at the bottom mm. of how you might want to answer, right? And I think that was a an interesting moment of a, a revelatory moment of making a, a a known thing kind of hyper visible again. Yeah, right. And the fact is that in those suggestions are often right on point and so it's reading the email and figuring out oh this is and and i use a lot of exclamation points all of you have received emails from me you know that i'm frequent with my exclamation points and those responses have a lot of exclamation points in them and so google actually knows that i'm highly excitable which you made a chatty bot go you (laughs) not so much chat but chatty john do you think that we have any space in here to be able to carve out I don't know if you want to call it a zone of silence, but a zone of privacy. It sounds like Andy's saying that privacy is kind of bye-bye. Yeah, he's waving it away. What do you reckon? Look, I, I guess, you know, I keep coming back to, to talk about my children because uh, in part they're, they're kind of a little laboratory, I guess, if you look at what next generation of people who didn't necessarily, well, didn't in any way grow up with the absence of these devices, for whom it's always just been the water that they swim in to the extent they don't even know it there's water at all and that that's where i guess it's going to be very tricky because how do we get them to get a sense that um this seemingly benign environment uh in which you know they've spent their entire life perhaps has shoals uh, and sharks and indeed sharks so to me you know you know as as the four of us standing here you know among the kind of elite of the people who are aware of what's happening in their world and that can make active choices in terms of technology and so we can make these active choices and as, as andy talked about in his particular interview a few weeks back you know kind of for the most part we just oh whatever i'm just willing to swap you know it's, a, it's all just too hard you know i i think the choice is really going to be to to largely drop out or to largely be all in. And I, I, I think that and the I, gap between those two is, is, is widening. Well, there's a third option, which is, you know, like for like, which is, can you envisage, envisage a future? So you've got all of these kind of agents, basically, who are um, tapping on your data, whether it's, whether it's your Roomba or your car or Google or whatever. Um, and whether there's a service there to be an agent on your behalf. Now, the, the trick is, of course, you can have to trust that agent with all of your data. It's very um, Neil Stevenson and kind of Snow Crash uh, and William Gibson in the sense you've got an agent who's kind of doing some of that kind of fending and protecting for you on your behalf and is learning the kind of stuff you're, you're willing to let in and the kind of stuff you're willing to let out and that that is doing some of the job of taking care of those things, taking some of those things off of the thinking list. So we end up with an arms race, I yes, guess, between yes. the agents that are protecting us and the, the antibodies against this. That would be my prediction, I reckon that's going to happen. But, yeah, but we also know, I mean, if you think about that stuff, because I've been thinking about agents a lot of late, right, the sort of the technical kind. And I've been trying to think about what, as a, an anthropologist, would you do to go study how we feel about those things, right? So, you know, how do we do the ethnography of a future that hasn't fully arrived yet, which mm. is always an interesting kind of question, right? And I'd been thinking about how homes that have, and again, you know, we're talking for the most part privileged homes, but our homes that have um, employed people in them, whether they are childcare, housekeepers, drivers, of which, you know, in multiple countries we've just referenced, that would be not uncommon. How do people behave around those other humans and what is in circulation and what isn't and what is known, unknown and never discussed, which are really interesting mm-hmm. kind of parsings of those things. I have a young colleague of mine at the ANU who's just finished doing some ethnography in this space and it was interesting listening to her talk about how householders felt about their servants, which is really at some of what we're talking about when yeah. we're talking about agents, about what they imagined those servants knew and didn't know and then because she was interviewing the servants too, what they knew, didn't know and chose not to know were all really interesting categories because so, we keep talking about it as though this were a simple thing 
thing, right? And the reality is, as humans, we frequently keep things from ourselves. We know that, right? We like to lie to ourselves more than we almost like to lie to anyone else. We certainly withhold information. We use disclosures of information as ways of cementing relationships. And we frankly do hold things out of circulation. I mean, when we came into this studio, Mark watched all three of us engage with a system that wanted to know our names, our phone numbers, and our email addresses. And John was the only one who seemed to have even been nominally compliant. Um, and I say nominally. Or was I? <laughs> exactly. Like I said, nominally compliant. So we know there are multiple mechanisms by which we are going to engage with this stuff. And I don't think it's as simple as saying we're all in or we're all out, or as simple as saying that it's one set of agents that are collecting that information. Because we know in some places it's governmental services. We know in some places it's other sorts of institutions. And I'm not convinced that you're right about, you know, privacy being a done deal. I actually think one of the things about privacy in certain contexts is that it's a constantly evolving dialogue. Mm. And in fact, we will find a new set of things that become private because we actually need to have things that are secrets. And so we will create a new class of things that we either never commit to the digital realm so we air gap something uh, my, my bitcoin hash address for my wallet or something right or you know the moral yeah. equivalent of the things you just don't type <laughs> and there'll be things right i mean you know the fact that we are also when i would again i say someone who sort of pays attention to cultural stuff the fact that we're going through a market resurgence of things like vinyl books magazines cooking body tattoos and typewriters i think that says something right that there's something in the what in the world would we like to take back to analog mm. not that we're not a full renunciation of the digital but that there are some things that might actually be better at analog and how do we then balance those things becomes really interesting right and not just analog but tactile mm-hmm. you know it's in the body in the body way. matters the body yeah. matters yeah hello hello and we'll be back shortly with genevieve bell andy Pauline, and john Alsop. Now, what I'd invite all of you to do, I know you're listening to the podcast, what I would invite you to do is go to the website or the show notes, wherever you are, there's a video that's up on YouTube that will be really helpful if you go and watch right now. So we will pause for a minute, but we will also now play a sample of that video. Just like any mobile device these days, it has cameras and sensors And just like your phones and social media apps, it does facial recognition. Inside here is three grams of shaped explosive. This is how it works. That little bang is enough to penetrate the skull and destroy the contents. So that little video is for a device that the video calls a slaughter bot. And it's, it's all made up. You know, it's a combination of a tiny little drone and a camera that's connected to facial recognition and all of this stuff that maybe we've been talking about a little bit on this show, but it all just sort of came together into one tight little device. And I watched this video, someone had referred it to me, and I watched this video a couple of weeks ago. And because I do study these things and I have a background in this, and because I'm an engineer, I'm looking at this going, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And I went through the checklist and realized that although this was theoretical because it was just in this video, in fact, you could probably just go and build one of these. And I was checking with some of my friends who do a lot of work in drones, and uh, he, he came up with this comment. He said, the real problem here is that these weapons are well within reach of just about everyone. And if we manage to ban them, which is the point of this video, this video was pointed out by folks who actually want to ban these, what they're calling autonomous weapons. If we ban them at nation state level, like we do with the Geneva Convention, so that we don't have, say, chemical weapons, and the UN just passed a ban on nuclear weapons, good luck with that, but they did. If we manage to ban them at the nation state level, they're going to prove easy to build with off-the-shelf components, so 3D printers and open source software and a little willpower. And that means that rogue actors and terrorists will have their hands on them sooner rather than later. And he finishes by saying the next 9-11 may not be a building coming down, but a precision-guided attack on perceived infidels. So, esteemed panelists, this is the world that we seem to be in at the end of 2017. We have some amazing bits of kit 
And it apparently, if you put this kit together in exactly the right ways, this amazing bit of kit is actually quite frightening. What do we do? It's already here, right? So the weapons that are actual weapons are kind of tedious to get hold of and expensive. It was shown with planes that you could hijack a plane and weaponize that, and now, of course, cars. So all the most recent terrorist attacks have been vehicles. Mm. And autonomous vehicles would surely be the kind of vehicle of choice. You know, if you were going to try and command a swarm. So I, I think that horse has kind of bolted. But the car doesn't have facial recognition built into it. It isn't going to follow Andy Pullane down. I mean, I, I suppose it will at some point, I guess. Genevieve is sitting here nodding. I suppose it will. I mean, does that then mean that when we have a world that can recognize us, that we have to contend with that world in a different way? Well, I mean, Andy's right to put a different stake in the ground, right, which is to say it is always tempting to look at the next set of technical objects that can be weaponized and direct our entire conversation there. But the reality is, frankly, there are a series of other things that kill human beings far more than any of these objects do, whether it is the repurposing of cars and trucks and knives and fertilizer, or whether it is, frankly, the incredibly banal yet terrifying statistics about how many women are the victims of domestic violence in this country. Country. I mean, we can have an entire conversation about autonomous weapons, and indeed we should. And we ought to be having conversations about how we think about the strategic military capacity of things. But frankly, there are other ways that technology has been weaponized for a distinctly long time that we don't spend half as much time worrying about. And I can, you know, tell you the statistics in Australia that say, you know, the leading cause of emergency room admissions in this country is falling off ladders. If we wanted to actually do something to save Australian lives, you would have ladders that were connected to the internet that every time you got up three steps said, get off the ladder or at least put a hand on the wall. Every piece of technology we have for making a smart home turns them into places where if you are the victim of domestic violence or abuse or stalking, all that technology is purpose-built to be better stalked. I mean, I don't want to take away from Slaughterbot, but I think it's really easy to have these forward-looking conversations where we get anxious about things that haven't yet happened without having the conversation about what the actual present looks like and where the danger is already. But I think that's what's so interesting about the Slaughterbot is not is this drone that's going to hunt you down and kill you. It's that we now have pervasive facial recognition technologies, which means that the environment really can stalk you in an interesting way. Which we are already being deployed, to Andy's point, in airports. We are having an entire conversation about do we deploy facial recognition technology with a back end of databases in Australian malls and public places? Well, apparently the government's now not just got the database, but they're off vlogging it around commercially. Which is, again, different than drones, right? I mean, I think there's a piece that says you add the latest technology and it always makes it seem simultaneously more scary and everything else. And that video is terrifying, but it's no different than the scenario that Bruce Sterling put out in the epic struggle for the Internet of Things five years ago when he talked about what you could do using, well, weaponizing thermostats in people's Mm. homes Mm. as a way of shutting down dissent by turning off people's heat. So, I mean, I think for me it's always that challenge, right, of when we talk about security, danger and risk, we minimize the existing security (laughs) dangers and risks and flag a conversation instead that takes away some level of responsibility that we have for the things that are already things we ought to be paying attention to. Which is politically advantageous, right? And it's always it been is. done as a way to kind of move forward a political agenda. Well, the prospective future is always much easier to handle mm. than the actual one we live in, yeah. in the present. Although, again, the, the folks behind this video are specifically talking about autonomous weapons, and we're sort of on a threshold mm-hmm. with those where nation states will be making decisions. And I don't disagree with that, Mark. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have that conversation, but I think that conversation gets is an, feels like it is always an easier conversation to have than the one about what the actual threats are to human beings in... In, say Australia, which are not yet drones, but in fact other human beings. I know. Sorry. We're back to talking about drones and the robotic vacuum cleaner. That will be fine. I guess it's not an either or. Either. I'm not suggesting it is. No, no, and, and I hear that quite clearly. But rather, it's can we avoid leaning into a dangerous future? I think that's the question I'm asking here. And like, is the slaughterbot an inevitability of? the way technology has unfolded or is it the result of decisions that we have been making all along the way or a set of affordances Mm. so the the you know ai driven um, facial recognition machine guns already exist and there's been some discussion around that Uh, could you explain i haven't heard of these could you so i have it because when i was looking um or at least prototypically exist obviously one of the things is you have a machine gun mounted somewhere 
It's uh, got a camera. It's recognising faces. It's acting as a sentry. It's going to let people in. So who, it's friend who, or foe. Yeah, friend or foe, right? And if you're the right face, you can get in. If you're not, presumably it's going to warn you before it then opens fire, right? <laughs> but the off, of the, That's an know, interesting, presumably, maybe might, it doesn't. Where that might go wrong is, is, is pretty clear. Right? I think the point of difference, perhaps, in what we're talking about, when I said it's already happened with cars, is... Uh, the slaughter bot and, and those machine guns, they are intentionally intended to cause harm or loss of life, right? whereas the other things aren't. The other things are what Genevieve is talking about. is very true, but a lot of those things are, are kind of byproducts and unintended consequences of some other kind of utopian future, like my house is full of sensors and cameras and that, that therefore makes me safer, and in fact it doesn't. Right? It could also make me more unsafe. Uh, and then the flip side, I say, in the domestic violence argument as well, yes, I got stalked, but I've now also got a recording of all of my, um, you know, of anything that happened to me. So there's always a kind of back and forth between those things. I think weaponized AI is a little notch different in that it, it's not intending to do anything else apart mm. from kill people or, mm. or harm people. But, you know, to your earlier point, it is not as though those drones are sentient. Let's be no. clear, you made that argument earlier. Yes. Not, in fact, you know, if they're not even faking sentience here. <laughs> yeah. So there is something, for me at least, that says, you know, where the argument is also is that in order for something like Slaughterbot to exist, it's not just about do we have facial recognition technology? Of course we do. Can we drive it using analytics at the edge onto a small mobile device that has a shape charge attendant to it? Yeah, we probably can. In order for all of those things to happen, there have to be some points of human intervention because frankly the facial recognition algorithm is not running around in the internet looking to work out how to buy a drone to attach itself to a shape chart. <laughs> exactly. but, and when it does we're in real trouble. But when it does it will do that because someone programmed yes. it to do that yes. right and I think the piece we always forget in this conversation is Slaughterbot is only possible if human beings are willing to create machinery to kill other human beings. Now, the thing about that is that should sound really familiar because human beings have been creating technology to kill other human beings individually and at scale for a really long time. So the challenge becomes here either how do you say this is a place where human activity and endeavour should not happen and as you rightly point out well we've seen that happen in other places so well we don't have nerve gas but we do have nuclear weapons, right? So mixed results. Precisely. So, you know, again... The drones are not going to become sentient and run around looking for facial recognition technology either, any more than, you know, your Roomba is, like, desperately hoping for whatever Roomba's hope for, toast. Um, So, you know, in order for all of that to happen, there has to be human action and agency and people who are willing to pay to have other human beings create that technology. It's not going to happen by magic. It will happen by the dent of human activity. Yeah. And so what's the thing you want to ban? The human activity, the constellation of those pieces of technology being bolted together, is it the way we banned certain forms of distillation of nuclear fissible material to prevent bombs from happening? So you need to circulate out people who have, you know, the bit to distill it versus the people who have the triggers. We could start to say those kind of things. But to Andy's earlier point, people also find ways of recombining these things in lightweight and more durable fashions. But it's this bit where you need to keep reminding people. We are not yet at a point where these pieces of technology are going to achieve their own desire. Right. It's not Skynet. Not yet. No. And in fact, Skynet doesn't happen unless a human being programs it that way too. Okay, so part of maybe what we need to do is we need to start telling ourselves different stories about the technologies that we have, that we're using, and that we're thinking about using, and the ones that we don't use and why we don't use them. Yeah, but I also think there's something to respect about why stories like that resonate. Like, why does that story resonate with you so profoundly? And I'm acutely aware that, you know, that is a story that is circulating almost 200 years to the day since Frankenstein. Right. And there is something about the stories we tell about fear in particular are stories that tap into very particular sorts of not irrational cultural anxiety. I, I mean, I, I think there's that. I think in my case, it's also because, again, it's the engineer in me that immediately goes, wait, I know how to put that together. Now, do you want to put it together? No. But that's that Californian ide- ideology all over again. And what, what you just described of, of an in-slaughterbot, you really see it playing out, which is 
more technology and better technology is going to help the good guys against the bad. Oh yeah, no, no, that, and that video you know, had it all. Yeah, I mean that combination of you know technology, uh, technological determinism and utopia and efficiencies with kind of sponsored by a state apparatus. You know that whole thing all just kind of comes together, and, and you know in that sense it shows where that can go wrong. But that's also then talking about the stories. It is the stories we're telling us. I mean, that's why I think it's so effective, right? It is, it's the distillation of those stories. You look at this and go, yeah, there but for the grace of God was Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. And you recognise it because you recognise the archetypes. I mean, to Andy's point, we all recognise what a corporate keynote looks like. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's a bloke on stage telling you about how he's built you the future and you're going to love it with an excellent demo. And the way you know it's not real is because the demo worked. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> John, your kids are going to grow up in this world now. So it's not just the autonomous vehicles, but it's the autonomous other things. I mean, how do we think for them? How do we give them the world and the tools that they need for that world? I mean, do we have the intuitions to do it? Perhaps we simply don't. Perhaps we grew up in such a world so different that, you know, these are complex systems, right? And so in any complex system, what emerges is, is different from what you can imagine because how we imagine is largely kind of a linear approach to the world. And so we, we can imagine all we like, what this world's going to do, and that's what science fiction is, uh, I think. And that's when it's at its best, what it, what it really does is, you know, it helps us identify what this world might look like. And, and Gibson and Sterling and Stevenson have all come up. Uh, sadly, fewer women have come up in their so conversation. So channeling well, Mary Ursula, Ursula Le Guin, Mary Shelley. Right. And Mar- Mary Shelley, of course, came up perhaps the, the, the original science fiction writer. Yep. But, but to get back to that, I think our intuitions are, com- are very faulty here. And I think a very peripheral and almost trivial seeming example of this to me is the way in which children, in my experience, my children have used social media. Now, the social media we all grew up with uh, when it emerged was, for the most part, this idea that uh, 1% of people create, 10% of people com- uh, you know, have conversations, and 90% of people can't quite count properly. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> carry the one. 101. Uh, but if you see uh, the kind of social media that you know kids, especially, let's say, tweens, my oldest daughter is in that age group, um, Often the nature of those media are very participatory. There's a particular thing called Musical.ly, which was just acquired by Tencent, I believe, or one Chinese company, for like staggering amounts of money. Now, there are some real challenges about it in many ways, but what's really important to me about it is the way in which you participate is both as a creator and a consumer. You can't look... Right, um, so it can kind of combines the 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 the, the kind of temporary nature of, of snap style communications with this performance uh, aspect as well. And yes, there are some very significant social challenges and so on around it, and the sense of self and the performance self, which increasingly I think that we live two lives. We live this online life where we well, we've always presented our best face to the world, but increasingly we present this hyper. You know, artificial best sense of ourselves. We, you know, it, it takes our lies we tell ourselves that Genevieve referred to and turns them into kind of, you know, like the biggest lies we can possibly tell. And just to come back to my point, to get back to the positive things in some ways, is the way in which, uh, you know, and, and I think this is very counterintuitive based on our experience of social media, uh, despite the fact that we're probably that 1% of people who kind of c- produce for others to comment on and consume for the most part, is that a far higher percentage of kind of younger people when they use social media are both producing and consuming rather than simply consumers. And and, and I guess that's a, an emergent phenomenon that one might not have predicted. And so similarly to all these much bigger and more challenging questions, I simply think whatever predictions we might make are probably going to be very wide of the mark, which of course doesn't shouldn't stop us from doing it. But um, the truth is I have no ho- idea how to predict pre- protect them is the wrong word it's very paternalistic and uh quite literally in my case but uh you know <laughs> enable them to ha- enable, enable them. them to engage right yeah. and and i guess you know if there is some hope in that to some extent is that part of the way that they engage is through not simply consuming what is created for them but participating in that and you and, and i think somewhere really interesting is in you the youtube culture and the rise of youtubers which a lot of people poo poo and whatever but you see it is actually reversing the flow of polarity of, of, of the way in which, say, Hollywood works. And I went to see something extraordinary the other night, 
uh, which was uh, a YouTuber called Miranda Sings, whom I don't know when many people in this room or in this audience have, have, have heard from, but I, I really recommend you go and have a look at her. And she's, she's quite extraordinary and almost impossible to describe, but she's turned this YouTube fame into a, a second series of a very poignant and quite very postmodern series on Netflix, and which again, I, which calls the haters back off. Um, and I really recommend people go and have a little look. There's something interesting there that was I, I, you know, when YouTube arrived, did we think, well, what they're going to do is basically reverse the polarity of Hollywood? And to be quite honest, is my my really out there observation is that I think Harvey Weinstein, in no small part, has been undone by the fact that he is no longer the kingmaker. It's actually these emergent, you know, kids and young folks on YouTube who have created their own audiences and they've created an economics around that. And the kingmakers like Weinstein increasingly don't have the same power. And so suddenly people aren't so afraid of them anymore. And, you know, that's drawing a very long bow. But if there's some positivity and optimism I see in all this, which it is actually a degree of democratisation of of participation in these online communities. So is this, I mean, to to take it back then and to sort of tie all of these threads together, is this the story that we need to be telling ourselves and our kids that, in fact, this is a participation, this isn't waiting for someone to build the bad robot, that it's something that we need to build the good robots, we need to build the happy Roomba that's not going to get out of control, whatever you want to call it, that will gossip in the ways that, that are helpful to us in Andy's sense that will have some meaningful form of communication. Is that because, again, as has been pointed out, all four of us have spent our careers in this. So I think this is native to us. But, John, are you now seeing that, in fact, with your daughters? Now, admittedly, your daughters have had an interesting view into the world because of you. But do you think that that's actually going to be more native mode for them? Is that the story they're telling themselves? Well, I think you only have to look at things like Minecraft as well. Uh, these other, you know, when we played games growing up, we kind of bought a game and, and, and we, or we actually went down to the to the local fish and chip shop and we played space and we put the 20 cents in and, and our mastery was how well we could engage with the creator's work. You, you fast forward kind of two, nearly two generations uh, and you look at Minecraft where the way in which you engage with it, firstly, you are creating, but secondly, you are modding. And you're learning your know, programming language in order to do this, and kind of you know kids in their you know before their teen years are doing that. So I think there is something about a far more engaged uh, approach, far less being simply consuming whether it's media or whether it's technology. And so perhaps if there is a kind of hope, that's where it lies. I feel like John's given us a kernel of hope. <laughs> Do the two of you want to take that and run with it? Uh, squash it Dash like a it. bug? <laughs> so, <laughs> Spoken like a true professor over there. So, <laughs> hey now, hey now. No. So I don't believe that's a particularly modern, or oh, I'd say modern, uh, generational occurrence. If I think back to MUDs and MOOs, so multi-object-oriented environments and, and multi-user dungeons, they were text-based, initially sort of text-based, kind of like adventure games online. Uh, very quickly became this sort of some of the early social media sort of post bulletin boards, and one of the things about those spaces was they they were Minecraft in text, in that you could build your own piece of that world and you could program it, and you could make devices that other people uh, interacted with, you could make spaces that people saw, which was really a kind of set of descriptions. Right? You know, uh, you've entered Andrew's. Uh, hall of wonders and you know a parrot lands on you so, and that you're just seeing that stuff in text and you interact with the parrot in some way and I c- could have programmed that parrot to respond in a pretty sort of canned way I think what was interesting around that time is of course not everyone was engaged in that world and what you're talking about I think is interesting goes back to the play aspect of it is that your kids and in the description of, of people kind of using these using social media using YouTube they are gaming the system. They're playing with the system. Sometimes they're gaming it. Um, sometimes they're just playing with it and exploring with it. And as they make, you know, one of the things you do when you play is you make stuff, right? And you, you make up rules and you make up sort of sets of uh, ways of playing and you make up social conventions. And if I think back to I think something Genevieve said earlier, but if I think back to the early days of the web, you had this thing called netiquette, right? You had this thing that actually everyone... Uh, said you know and going back to Stuart Brand and the well you know there was an etiquette there was this is what you do in this community and this is what's acceptable and this is not uh, this is what isn't and if you 
uh, contravene those, you're going to get booted out of this community. And what we've seen as that uh, all those media have kind of exploded is a lot of people, it's like loads and loads of people just running onto the football pitch and kicking the ball around because no one's told them they, they shouldn't. And the kind of whole disastrous kind of swamp that uh you know facebook and twitter and all of those have kind of found themselves in is because there isn't that shared understanding of what those kind of social rules are broadly i think within the kind of small communities that happen within inside those large places there are so if you're in a kind of whatsapp group or if you're in a uh twitter in a group of sort of people you follow on twitter or a hashtag that you follow or a facebook group or any of those things or on snapchat there's a set of rules around that that you kind of agree to that bit of me, bit of it gives me some hope because it, it sort of brings back the the human connection part of it and what we do and don't do to other people. The big problem is when that you're outside of that little group is and in the sort of massive agora of the kind of of the whole of social media is that those kind of rules just start to fall away and nobody cares, right? And hence you get trolls and all the rest of them. Yeah, see, I wonder if it's that. I mean, I'm, I'm always sort of struck by, by three things, and John saw me vigorously shaking my head. It wasn't about you, John. It was about a particular... It's about two things in what you'd said that I always worry about. And, Andy, you amplified a piece of it too, right? Is that we use the word democratisation, and I don't think we unpack it particularly kindly or particularly smartly when we talk about it, right? I think what we mean is lots of people should have an equity of access, and that's not quite the same thing as democracy because, frankly, you know, Mark... It was born in a country that has a very different democracy than the one in which I was born, you know. You're not required to vote in America, you are required to vote here. That actually makes for a different democratic manifestation. So I want to kind of push on the when we say democratisation, what we actually mean, and I think Andy comes closer to it, which was that everyone just got on the football field or the cricket pitch or whatever, right? The second piece is I think we spend a lot of time fetishising kids when the reality is, in fact, there are arguments about, you know, what are people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s and even centenarians doing with this technology because all of those things matter too. Kids may be novel experimenters, but we also know that, you know, some of the fastest growing groups using all of those technologies you described are in their 40s, 50s and 60s and we ought to in some ways attend to what's going on there too because I actually think there are forms of radical activity that are worthy of scrutiny and interest and I do wonder to your point Andy, it does feel like it's a free-for-all now but one of the things we know about the appearance of every new technology is that there's a period of time where people haven't quite decided what it's going to be and how they're going to use it and so there are periods of time when people's behaviours around it are weird like, you know, when cars got first introduced into the Midwest of America, there was a period of time where people took the doors off and played polo with them. And this is demented. It did not last. Many people were injured. They went, yeah, so that's not it then. We should probably not do that anymore. And you're like, okay, good. You know? But then Segway polo is a thing. I know. So it and returns. Yet, as it does, because what else can you do with the thing? I mean, there's a period of time when television turned up. We know when the internet first appeared. And if colleagues of mine were joking about this when the internet first appeared in American companies, there was this period of time where everyone just stopped doing things. Like, yeah. well, we just went, oh my God, it's the internet. We shall now go see what there is. And I think we're in a protracted period of that where hmm. it isn't clear to me if you were to come back and have this conversation 10 years from now, if we'd still be and saying... we shall. And I'm looking forward to that. Where we would say, nah, all bets are still off. Football field still crowded with people going, ah, many balls, not all of them, you know, footballs. So, I mean, I think there's a bit that says we don't know what the right periodicity is here to call whether this is the way it will always be or whether this is a transitionary period we are going through. But the thing that we do know is that a billion seconds from now we will have some clarity we will be further down the billion people will have gotten bored on the pitch and maybe figured out actually it'll be five or six billion people on the pitch at that point because we're only at two billion now and in fact the next three billion are about to pour onto that pitch so for some period of time into the future it's going to be interesting it's not going to be maybe democratizing in the way we like to think about it, which is, you're right, very sort of specific to where we grew up, but it is going to be everybody. Well, and not everyone like us. And that's kind of wonderful to imagine. If there's a thing I'm hopeful about, it's that they won't all be like us. And that will be a glorious future. And on that note, I want to thank John Alsop, Andy Pellane, and Genevieve Bell. That was a heck of a conversation. And if it got you to thinking, we would like to hear from you. Drop by our LinkedIn page. Send us a message on Twitter. 
Tell us what you want to know about the future. Tell us who you want to hear from about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you on a future episode because, yes, there will be a future episode. We'll be back in 2018 with Series 2 of The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by Dee Hawala. Music by Kirk Godfrey. Thanks to Ian Chalmers for some research on the Slaughterbot. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening. <laughs>